Hi friends, my name is Ryan Cagle and you are listening to the third episode of our Not-So-Ordinary Time season of the Lessons from Dead Guys podcast, a work of Exile Liturgy. Today I have a super awesome guest and I've just been super stoked for this interview and I'm so glad um, that he's decided to come on and have uh, Brad Jersick here with us um, to just talk about his life and talk about uh, more Christ-like God and his journey into orthodoxy and, and whatever else comes up. And I'm just super excited about the conversation. And uh, Brad, if you will, you just want to briefly introduce yourself for some people that may not be very familiar with who you are or your work. Hi. Well, maybe um, I'll start by saying thanks for having me on. And I'm really, really looking forward to chatting with you. I uh, am currently uh, a teacher and an author and an editor um, I teach New Testament and patristics, which is early church fathers, and classics in contemplative spirituality that covers from the first to century up to, to now. Probably Henri Nouwen would be the, the most recent. And then, uh, so I teach that at Westminster Theological Center in the UK, and I also teach similar courses with St. Stephen's University in New Brunswick. And so there's a lot of commuting and internet and that kind of thing involved. I'm also um, the editor-in-chief of CWR magazine, which stands for Christianity Without the Religion, which it sounds funny to people when they know I'm also a, a preacher in the monastery of an Orthodox church. <laughs> um, but we would regard religion as having nothing to do with you know, bells and smells and all of that stuff, and uh, more to do with self-righteousness and and um, and that kind of thing. And then I, I've written or co-written, I guess, about 13 books now. Uh, some are in wow. political science, some are theology, some are more popular spirituality, and even a couple of kids' books. And um, so, yes, between editing the magazine, teaching in the school, and writing, I'm staying pretty busy. That's awesome. <laughs> I imagine, or I, I guess I really can't imagine, but uh, yeah, that's that's so great. I guess what you just recently, well, I, I shouldn't say recently, had the a children's book come out, right? Jesus Showed Us. Yeah, that's right. And the yeah. idea of that children's book, and people can see it on Amazon or on bradjersak.com, um, but the idea is that we're answering this question, what is God like? And so the answer on every page is Jesus Showed Us. And what did Jesus show us? Well, so we've got 16 um, pieces of art from the gospel stories. And in each case, Jesus is showing us that God is love from many different angles. And we're finding it's, um, it's being welcomed because people are asking, okay, if we're not going to go with this sort of violent retributive God, who the punisher and all of that, the one that Jesus is saving you from, but rather... Uh, the God revealed by Jesus, where do we find books for our kids so they don't un have to unlearn all the stuff we had to unlearn? So that that's why I wrote it. And um, it's, uh, it seems to be scratching an itch, I guess, for, for yeah. unfundamentalist parenting. <laughs> yeah, uh, man, as, as a young, uh, as a father of two kids, that's something I definitely wrestle with as being on the other side of now, I guess, of fundamentalism on the other side of, you know, how so used to thinking like, you know, I didn't, I didn't really grow up in church. Of course I knew some Bible stories, but it was like, you know, even now I've, I've always been so worried about letting my son go to Sunday school or vacation Bible school, because like, I don't want like, you know, David killing someone with a rock being the first thing he thinks about when he thinks about God or, mm -hmm. you know, God flooding the earth and, or, you know, and not that, and that's nothing against any Sunday school program or VBS program or, or whatever. But um, as a father to a four-year-old and a one-year-old is something that I, I wrestle with consistently. So I've, I appreciate that. You know, I've um, that's definitely something I think we need. I don't think it's being addressed uh, very well because um, I, I know it would just be so easy for me just to you know, reiterate all those Bible stories that I, I heard or, or whatever to my son and then him just have to deal with all the same junk that I've had to deal with coming back out, out of those things and realizing what, you know, 
who God looks like and that he looks like Jesus and that Jesus showed us exactly who God looks like. So I think that's super awesome. Um, and to think that, you know, you, you, you write for kids and then you, you write for people that are above my head. And, you know, so it's just pretty, it's awesome that you got your hands in so many different areas and, uh, God's using you in that way. I, well, I like it. to say that I, I went and did my PhD and post PhD research so that I could write the kids book. Cause I, I think that's a big part of it is, we, we need to um, – the, theology isn't just hair-splitting anymore. It's like our theology will will determine what we tell our kids, and we better get it right, and we have not been, and you can see the fruit. So I feel like that was a good investment for me to head back into some serious research. But the end game was, you know, what do we tell kids or what do we tell – um, addicts who are just off the street for the first time, or what do we tell disabled people about, you know, well, maybe, maybe it should start by listening to them instead of telling. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, I, if I could share some of my background, maybe that would um, yeah, explain yeah, how, how I got here. Uh, I grew up, I'm 53. So it's a long story, and I'm going to crunch it. Um, I grew up, with wonderful parents who loved Jesus and taught me to love Jesus um, in a context that was sort of Baptist. Well, not sort of, it was exactly Baptist uh, with a heavy dose of sort of revivalism and, and uh, uh, apocalyptic stuff, end times, rapture, all of that. And, and um, so I had 20 years of that and what, what they did for me and what I have kept is a real love for scripture then I went off to college and got more conservative than my parents were. I was, uh, I did a, a Bible degree and an MA in biblical studies. And by the time I was done that, I was a five point Calvinist, <clears throat> but that, uh, that unraveled pretty quickly. Cause I, my high view of the Bible just caused me to discern where we, where that Calvinist system was twisting scripture and my conscience was not okay with that. And then um, I got married and my wife and I were called to her home church, was a Mennonite church. And so for 10 years, I was a youth and young adults minister and outreach guy in this Anabaptist setting, which was very, very gospels focused. And, and that was a real takeaway for me. And this particular Mennonite church had also gone through the Jesus people era. So um, they were pretty open to, to the Holy Spirit and things that, uh, we were connecting with in the vineyard just down the road from us. So I'd say it was like a small C Mennonite context uh, with, you know, the peacemaking and all of that and and uh, relief and development work that I love. And so I, I got the justice piece from them as well. And after 10 years of that, um, my wife and I joined another couple and we went and planted a church called Fresh Wind. And that was a church for children and people with disabilities. About a third of the church are, are people with disabilities in full-time care. And then we also have, um, uh, we call them prodigals coming home, which was a lot of addicts of various types, alcoholics, um, drug addicts, uh, sex addicts, and so on. And it just made this really incredible um mixture we've written a book about our encounters with christ through the disabled and the addicts and the children called kissing the leper uh seeing jesus in the least of these and i led that for 10 years but we in 2008 i just really i unraveled because uh we went through so many tragedies the the nature of the people in our church really um you know we were having overdoses uh, we had an abduction we had a gruesome murder we had a bunch of suicides all in one year and i i really honestly fell apart and that's when i started going for spiritual direction and and um i stepped down and my wife led the church for five i was leading or co-leading for 10 years she led then for five years while i recovered and for my recovery I went off and did my phd and and um in theology and and um and also during that time that's when i came under uh the, a spiritual father named archbishop lazar pahalo who's a who's a monk in a orthodox monastery and um first of all i i really gravitated to 
the orthodox theology that says God is love only. Every other attribute of God is just a facet on that one diamond. And so you can't have a love or um, that's not holy. Or you can't put it this way. You can't speak of holiness or righteousness or justice as anything other than God's love. Or else you have an unholy, holy, an unloving holiness. And that's what that's the people who crucified Jesus, right? And then also right, with, exactly. uh, experiencing sort of real nervous system burnout from all the tragedies in 2008, I found the liturgy to be very, very therapeutic. And so uh, end of, no, sometime 2012, I, I finally joined the Orthodox Church. And now I'm, a, I'm, I'm one of the official monastery preachers. And we have a little congregation of maybe 60 or 70 people on Sundays. And I, I participate in that. That's so awesome. So it's been an eclectic journey um, with between the Baptists, the Mennonites, Fresh Wind, and the Orthodox. But but I sure value everything I've picked up and as I've embraced um, the gifts that the, each group has. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I I can't relate as far as time as going through all these different things. But um, for the last two years, I kind of feel like I've just been intensely open to all these different traditions and. Um, I like how Brian Zahn puts it when he talks about, you know, needing, you know, Orthodox mystery and, and Catholic beauty and talking about, hey, needs all these parts. And I think that, that that exactly sums up the last couple of years for me is that I, I've learned so much from the Orthodox Church and the Mennonites and um, the Anglican Church and just all these different streams. And it's been like an intensive process for the last couple of years. And uh, I've so thankful, I guess. I'm thankful for people like you and Brian Zond and, and people who have walked through all these different places so people like me can come back in behind and, and see that there's a bigger world through y'all's lives and your testimonies and your works and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I, that's what when I told somebody uh, this week. I was like, yeah, I'm having Brad Jersek on, and they're like, who's that? And I was like, oh, he, he like grew a Baptist, and now he's Eastern Orthodox. And I was like, I'm just super stoked to have this conversation with him. Uh, so that's just really cool to me, just the, the journey through those things. And um, I'd like to say one of the things, I guess, just that already that I'm just, I love uh, as far as that you're talking about is just you have all this, you're just communicate this theology and, and things like that. But you have, it seems like you have such a love for getting your hands dirty. And I, I think a lot of times that there, there creates a divide there. I know a lot of people, as far as on the, they talk theology all day long, but they never get their hands dirty. They never get down the knit and grit of it. And um, so I appreciate that. I appreciate you you sharing that with me. That's that's really really awesome. Well, I feel like um, the best theology has always been a reflection on what the Holy Spirit is doing in the worshiping community. In other words, you don't create your theology in the corner of a seminary somewhere and then bring it down to the church to say, okay, now apply this theology we discovered. Um, rather, the best theology is from analytical people observing and reflecting what God is doing um, in in the in the context of the nit and gritty of the nitty gritty of pastoral life. So, for example, um, a lot of my theological shifts began by just observing how God was working with addicts, for example, or what we were learning about what God is like in the context of inner healing. That was another huge piece for me. Uh, for 15 years, I was doing a lot of inner healing kind of work with people who were molested and um, and then ultimately molesters as well, because you want to prevent it. And then we realized, well, it's not just about sexual assault, all these kinds of wounding. And so we discovered um, and, and and developed methods of, of doing inner healing work. Well, so I want to say like 95% of my theology comes from watching how Jesus was dealing with broken people in real time. And then going off and saying, who, who are the great theologians who know this, who, whose theology is congruent with what we see in practice. And lo and behold, it's the great church fathers who, who thought in terms the gospel not in terms of a courtroom where sin is law-breaking behavior that needs punishment by a judge, but rather it's this deep sickness of the soul that needs a great physician. Well, that's that's the church fathers. That's the Eastern fathers. That's 
uh, Irenaeus and Gregory and the great hierarchs. And so, you know, they, that, this was their language. It was the church is supposed to be a hospital. Out of that right. came their theology. And I would say out of that came my theology as well. Yeah, you know, um, even though, like, I guess I, I kind of would say that I was I was a fairly legalistic teenager and and kind of really fundamentalist. But um, our church, I come from my dad's an addict to this day; he's still an addict. Um, my brother has been an addict. Um, my family's been really really impacted by by drug abuse and and things like that. And um, our church, that was one of the things we had. We had so many people in our church that were that were addicts that were struggling with all different kinds of you know different addictions and and things like that and um, even though I never you know at th- that point in my life had ever heard you know about you know Gregory or Irenaeus or, or any of these people, um, it was like you know I, I I understood that sin was the sickness more than anything and. Yeah. So it was really cool when I went back and started reading some of the church fathers and reading, you know, some of the orthodox, you know, orthodox teachings about it and how it was just like, man, that that's been there. It's like I, I've known that, but I it, I never expressed it necessarily in a theological way because you know, still in my head, it was right and wrongs. It was you know, black and white, do this, don't do this, kind of kind of mentality. But in my heart of hearts, I guess you know, I I understood sin as this sickness and I seen how it affected people and. um so my congregation, my you know little Pentecostal congregation church plant that I was a part of, really helped um, definitely build that I guess that compassion for those kind of people in me and seeing those people. And I think for me, and I don't know if this is something that maybe resonates with you, is that on the other side now, when I look back, even despite I had like all these checklists of beliefs that I don't necessarily believe anymore, but even when I look back, I see how I said I believe those things, but deep down, I believed. I believe the things that I, I guess I believe now that God's really like Christ and that God really is love, you know? Um, and, but I, I spent so much time trying to convince myself otherwise, you know, God's this judge, he's this, he's that. But deep down in my bones, I always knew that God was love and nothing else. You know, all these other things were additives. And, um, and it was, for me, it was from encountering these people. It was dealing with people who the night before, you know, or that I had, you know, I was there and they were doped up as dope could be. And then the next day they were in the altars of the church praying, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's exactly it. And you hear this a lot, you know, I, maybe, maybe I drank the Kool-Aid, but I know a lot of people who would say just what you said, where they're like, I always knew it. I knew it. I knew it, you know, and they're so, they, they realize that, well, in, in from their end, maybe they they feel like they were intuiting that God was much better than this message that they were hearing. But it's not just to intuition. It's like God loves them, and, and he was authentically revealing himself as something that actually pushed back against the the, the, the status quo, um, you know, confessional statements. And I would say modernist confessional statements because the ancient stuff would also confirm their suspicions that God is, uh, um, in the great ancient liturgies, he's a good and gracious and merciful and man befriending or woman befriending God. You know, his primary disposition towards us is, is love. Um, whereas later in church history, you know, with the Calvinism I was indoctrinated in for a while, uh, God's primary disposition was enmity. And which means the first thing he thinks about or feels towards you when he looks at you is that he's angry and, and that you're his enemy. And it's like, this is, this is not true. It's just, and, and so I have, I've noticed this too, when, when you're reading 12 um, step recovery material, it's the same God you read in the desert fathers of the fourth century. It's quite amazing that way. And they're all about this God of love who moves you from ego or self-will um, through to brokenness and 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 bottoming out and surrender, and then he begins to heal you and you ascend um, to wholeness, but not through more self-will or willpower. And so, I, I can just be reading these things side by side, you know, the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book side by side with Cassian's conferences with the Desert Monks in the late three hundreds. It's it's incredible because God has a way of communicating with us even through our, our silliness i think yeah for sure and that's i was actually to say before you said you mentioned aa is that i was having a conversation with um we were in like a church development kind of class 
and we were just talking about how like AA is, has been having it doing the thing the church has, should have been doing for the last several decades. You know, they've been able to embody this love and, and this connection and thing in ways that a lot of the churches, especially here in the Bible belt have not been able to do. Um, and I think it's because like you said, they, when it comes down to the, the grid of it, they, they know something that we, we're not preaching on Sundays, you know, we're not, we're not telling the people, um, you know, so that's, I'm, I'm, that's super awesome. But, um, you know, it's, it was crazy for me. And I, w- I would say like the last couple of years, essentially everything that in the last several years of, I guess my deconstruction or whatever, is that God is far greater than I ever could have imagined. And at the same time, he is, he's as good as I've always hoped that he was more than I've hoped he was, you know, mm-hmm. um, I would say for, for me, the main predisposition I would have had growing up or, you know, as a teenager and in that kind of fundamentalism was that God was primarily concerned with this holiness before anything. Right. And, and so everything was filtered through that, you know, so God, God, God's holiness and his glory. So God demanded glory, you know, God would take nothing less than, than glory. And so of course that, adds all kinds of things to love and all these little, little footnotes about how love just isn't really love, you know, in that mindset, I guess. Yeah. It's a, a God re- is- re- de- it's a redefinition of all these very important words. I mean, no, let me say it stronger. It's a perversion of these important words uh, yeah. to the, to early, the early church. Um, uh, the, the, the righteous righteousness referred to the experience of the grace of God. Somebody who was, who was fully um, uh, immersed in the experience of the grace of God was considered righteous. And then if that grace overflowed so much so that the grace touched people around them, they would say, that's holiness. So the capacity to be so full of grace that it heals those who come close to you that's what they called holiness. Whereas we've done this other creepy thing with it, where holiness is this thing that, that keeps God aloof. And if you get close to him without preparing well, he'll fry you or something with his glory. Whereas, you know, Christ showed us the glory of God on the cross as self-giving love. So, I mean, it's just like you take all these familiar terms and somehow in certainly in the Latin West, it just <clears throat> amped up to the point of the, a kind of, a violent fervor or something that we pro- were projecting on God and calling it holiness. And it meant nothing of the sort. Uh, so it's, it's all, I don't, you hardly know what to do with, which words do you give up then? Right. Or how do you retrieve them again? And, yeah. How, or how do you even, you know, like reuse them in context where it doesn't set people back? You know, yeah. I think, I think for those, those first couple of years, if I, you know, that first year after we left the church, we were part of, I went to church eight times and every time it was like, I was fighting for my life to breathe. Yeah. And anytime I heard somebody talk about, you know, God demanding his glory or, um, you know, God having to kill Jesus, you know, (laughs) essentially, I mean, that's, that's a very unnuanced kind of approach, but, you know, I was dealing a lot with very, even seemingly, you know, in the area, uneducated pastors, um, in theology. So everything was very, it was like, you know, they took penal substitutionary atonement to the extreme, um, and that became and it just, the standard, didn't it? I mean, that's the right. average thing you're hearing from the pulpits is that extreme version. You don't hear the nuance thing anywhere, hardly except a few good books. Right. <laughs> you know, and every, every time I, I mentioned somebody's like, oh, that's, you know, that's not really as in, you know, it's not that in, you know, to that extreme. I'm like, well, that's what's getting, you know, that's what's getting heard in the pews. That's exactly that's, that's the version. And that's why we're, you know, in the mess we're in. And that's exactly, you know, for me. My problems with God, I guess, would say that when I started having questions and doubts or whatever, wrestling with those doubts, happened because of the church. And I just remember looking around and saying, you know, if this is who we are, then I don't want to be a part of it. If this is what you're, what we, you know, the standard for us, and this is what following you produces and things like that, then I don't want a part of it. And I am so eternally grateful for Crossroads Assembly of God in ways that I'll never be able to articulate. And, but I, you know, in my experience and how I, I received certain things, it just pushed me to a place where I was just um, self-loathing of myself. And so I became self-loathing, you know, I began to loathe the church and thus 
began to <laughs> to have these issues and frustrations with God, and I just could not wrap my mind around a God that loved me, but if he didn't, you know, beat Jesus to death, then I, then there, his love couldn't come to me or, or yeah. really, you know, be mine. And, um, those are some of the earliest questions, you know, and it kind of took the form spe- specifically within the, the realm of apocalyptic kind of mindsets, you know, that Jesus was going to come and burn the world to the ground was, you know, the pretty much standard, um, view of revelations that I've been handed. And so I was just like, you know, what's the point of all this? If you're just going to come and burn everything to the ground anyway. And yeah. Yeah. Well, you couldn't what, get your head around it because it's completely irrational. <laughs> you know, like yeah. if you could, you'd be <laughs> mentally ill at, at some level. I'm, you know, I'm, I sound crass about it, but but there is an actual thing called um, religious PTSD, and it comes oh, yeah. from actually trying to trying to hold these these uh, kind of contradictions together they're not mysteries or paradoxes it's just a contradiction um the, right the god, you know my god who loves us and made us is you know is, is so out of control that he, he, he <laughs> well you get the idea you've been there yeah 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 so you know and i would say like I, my wife she wouldn't mind me sharing this she's she grew up in a very very fundamentalist baptist kind of home Mm-hmm. an environment and it um to the she still has still has things you know she still has to wrestle with and remind herself you know this isn't this isn't what god's like this isn't you know she she basically you know has her just I, I guess in a way you know i guess remind herself of her her baptism remind herself that she's experienced the love of god that she's included and that god's not out to get her because yeah. her whole life i mean even when we were dating as teenagers she she literally you know rededicated her life like 15,000 times because yeah. she was so afraid yeah. that she wasn't saved enough or or you know god wasn't going to be pleased with her and um I, I had a few, a little bit of that, but not not near as extreme as she did. And she still, she, you know, it's still so in, ingrained in her. I think, and that goes full circle back to needing to teach our kids better theology now on the other side of this thing because we don't want them to grow up in the same, and <laughs> and deal with the same kind of things. Even though obviously my wife would never, I guess, intentionally project to the extreme onto our kids, or I wouldn't that we received or she received, but. Well, you get you get to break the cycle, right? But the thing right. is, like, she never came up with that herself. You like, you just don't. That that kind of fear is instilled from some form of the, something that's been communicated. But because a kid, kids are instinctively, no, well, they're actually created to have an awareness of God's presence and God's love for them. So when you introduce this other stuff, you just know someone's introduced it and even in good faith, you know, you don't, but, but it's, it, it, it takes, it takes uh, work and sometimes serious therapy to come through it. So. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's funny as you talk about kids having an awareness is like, she talks about when she was a kid getting in trouble because she told her mom that she believed that, um, you know, when everything was said and done, that Jesus was going to walk into hell and beat Satan up and get everybody out of hell. <laughs> and so you we know, only she's say that every single Sunday in the Orthodox liturgy. <laughs> so right, she, right. She knew but, it. You know, she knew yeah, it. she she knew it as this you know like five or six year old. That was you know she was a universalist already. You know she had she God was going to rescue and and you know swing the gates of hell wide open and rescue everyone and. Um, you know, of course that was like in a kind of a fundamentalist Baptist environment that was like, you know, red alert, you know, (laughs) you know, this was, we got to get this squashed out really quick, you know? Um, and so she had that, you know, mindset even as a kid. And of course it was, you know, suppressed and suppressed and, um, in a sense, theologically beaten out of her, I guess. But, um, which is, it's just crazy. You know, she has that, she had that awareness, you know, and that's, it's so cool to think about. And, um, I kind of have a little bit of hope that I, I won't screw my kids up as bad as, <laughs> as as bad as some people get, you know, messed up. So I feel like I'm starting out on a better foot anyway. Yeah. How old but, are your kids, by the way? Uh, four years old and one and a half. Oh, they're, 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 it's going to be really good. It'll be really good. You know, my kids are, uh, let's see, 27, 24, and 21 now. And even with uh, 
you know, like compared to me, they would probably seem biblically illiterate. And yet their, their conception of God is, is so much cleaner than mine. It's, it's much more pure. And, and uh, so they might not be able to, you know, tell you all the books of the Bible in order, but they, when they talk about God, they actually know him and what he's really like. And so that I, that's ahead for you, your kids. Uh, It's, it's, they're going to get it and they do get it. You just have to not unteach them what they're getting. <laughs> yeah, right. That's, I'm finding out they're, they're teaching me a lot more than I think I'll ever be able to teach them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I tell people all the time, I hear the gospel and the pitter-patter of their little feet running down the hall every day. And, Very good. Um, so it's it's awesome. Definitely out of the mouth of babes for sure. Uh, yes. <laughs> I, I've, I've, seen that, I've seen that scripture fulfilled a dozen times <laughs> every week it seems like. So yep. that's awesome. And so um, I wanted to kind of focus in. So um, was there like a defining moment, I guess, in your walk when you just really realized that God was like Christ or, you know, you really grasped this idea of a more Christ-like God or was it this kind of slow working as far as within those, you know, the context you talked about and things like that? Um, I could answer that in different ways. I'm going to pick one that uh, a pair of events that came together that were a major turning point. And that was um, uh, at some point, I guess in the nineties, I was pr- doing a lot of contemplative prayer, listening prayer um, connected both to the inner healing world, but also to what I was discovering among the sort of prophetic people in the vineyard, but also the ancient mystics. And so I was doing a lot of, a lot of, exercises like you'd get in um, the Ignatian exercises and St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross and, and so on. So I, I, I'm at that point, you know, 80% of my prayer life was contemplative listening and watching and waiting. Um, in that, in that context, one day um, uh, I heard, I heard an internal, I call it an internal audible voice. So you wouldn't hear it with your ears, but it was a, it was a sentence I could hear in my head, and it said this, um, stop telling people I was punishing my son. That's not what was happening. It was as clear as "Wow, you're hearing me is how I heard it in my head, and I'm like, uh-oh, because <laughs> I had done my master's <laughs> thesis promoting penal substitution. I was still coming wow. out of five-point Calvinism. I thought penal substitution was not a theory of the atonement, but the gospel itself. And now I'm hearing the very opposite in this from this intrusive voice that I recognized. It'd be like Abraham recognizing the voice of God and then having the same voice say, take your son up the hill. You know, yeah, it's like, yeah. okay, but yeah. wait, I, you, this can't be you, but I know you. And, and this sounds like you. So that was a major moment. And then, and then I thought, well, I like, you don't just go with that. That would be stupid. Um, that's how, people do psychotic things. So then I, I began to uh, think about, okay, I got to weigh and test this. And how do you do that? And so I thought if I just do it in my echo chamber of evangelicals, they'll just pounce on me. And so I sent out, I sent out emails all over um, the body of Christ. I thought I need to get input on this from Catholics and Anglicans and Orthodox and uh, charismatics and evangelicals and liberals and, uh, you know, high Anglicans and, you know, uh, Anabaptists and not just theologians, but practitioners, uh, pastors and so on. And what I did is I, I sent out this this email saying, look, at, I, I, I didn't tell them I heard a voice. What I, what I said was things like, I'm looking for alternative atonement theories to penal substitution because I'm seeing in Isaiah 53 uh, this uh, prophecy that you will think he was stricken by God. You will, you will esteem him stricken by God, but he's not, you know, it's your sins that did this. Right. Um, That's our way of reading it. So anyway, they, they just, people started sending responses like Richard Rohr and, Rowan Williams and N.T. Wright and Marcus Borg and all these guys, um, men and women. Um, and 
and they're saying, yeah, you've seen something. Uh, there is another way of looking at this. And they would share their version of it. And they weren't all in agreement with each other. But they were definitely saying that, it, that the cross was not about appeasing the wrath of an angry God. Um, the other event that happened right at the same time was I started co-laboring with Archbishop Lazar. I had just, just met him. One of my mentors had introduced me and we were going to print some magazines together. And uh, the monastery happened to have a print shop. So he said, yeah, I'll help you. So we're, we're um, making issue one of this magazine. And it's this archaic print shop that required me and this retired archbishop. He's the active abbot, but um, to like fold magazines, thousands of copies together. <laughs> and he's standing by me and he, trying to get to know me. And I'm telling him I'm having this kind of awakening that maybe God wasn't punishing his son. And, and he said, hang on a second. You think that God had to, the father had to punish his son to appease his own wrath through a violent sacrifice, a violent child sacrifice? Of, and I'm like, well, yeah, basically. <laughs> and he said, oh, I see your problem. You worship Moloch, <laughs> not Yahweh. And I'm like, what? <laughs> he goes, yeah, you're, you're describing Moloch. This is, he said, penal substitution is the primary cause of atheism in the modern world. I'm like, what? <laughs> so, I mean, um, on the one hand, it was like he was just quite uh, intense about it. But it, it was what I was seeing. And so that began our friendship, and and it began years and years as a catechumen at his at his feet. But uh, yeah, so those two things. It was hearing that voice in my head and getting all these responses back, and then and then the confirmation that like the Orth Eastern Orthodox Church has never believed that, and they've always had a a, a much more powerful and beautiful um, theology of the cross. Yes, you know, and I think um, that's one thing for me was just seeing, you know, I guess for the most part, Jesus was, I, I guess I, what some people would call a vam vampiric Christian, you know, I just mm -hmm. wanted Jesus for his blood and that was it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what gets produced out of, you know, penal substitutionary atonement. It's we reduce the whole Christ event down to his blood being shed so we can make it to heaven, you know, well, God, so we can avoid hell. His blood so we can make it to heaven. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we can, avoid, you know, he's our, he's our fire insurance. And, yes. um, I know when I, when I first, I guess, started reading some of the church fathers and different things and the way they talked about Christ and the incarnation just wrecked me, you know, like, um, and seeing, you know, how, how much of his whole life, you know, the whole incarnation, the, everything from, you know, from birth to resurrection and ascension was, salvic in nature that it was mm -hmm. got you know christ coming to heal the world and um that radically shifted everything for me um and it was that was i would say that was the next uh thing for me you know it was really began to deconstruct the whole apocalyptic you know rapture palooza kind of john Hagen the doom and glooms mindset and that of course led directly back to the cross and how i view god and um so it you know, it, it definitely, it fell apart when I finally just realized like, you know, this, this idea that God demanded, you know, blood sacrifice, you know, that his own son, you know, be brutally murdered at the hands of the, the you know, Jewish and Roman authorities. So I could get to heaven just can't be it. <laughs> like, oh, no. I was just, I didn't know what could be it at the time, but I just knew this can't be it, you right. know? Um, and so it just led to years worth, several years worth of deconstruction and, and things like that. So I definitely would say that I definitely um, believe in a more Christ-like God today, um, much more Christ-like God than I've ever believed in, you know, before. So that's super. That's a super cool experience. And of course, I, I imagined um, the the that um, the Archbishop <laughs> just being like, "Oh, this is your problem," you know. I just, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure it didn't seem as funny to you at the time, but <laughs> oh, it was shocking. And remember too, I mean, this guy looks like Gandalf, literally, and and he dresses like Gandalf, and and. and what was so valuable about that to me is, you know, as I was having these kind of questions, it'd be my conservative evangelical friends are going, no, you're, you, you're becoming liberal. And Archbishop Lazar would say, this, this is not liberal at all. This is what you're seeing 
um, is the historic Christian faith um, of the very same church fathers who who compiled the New Testament and gave us the doctrine of the Trinity and the full deity of Jesus Christ and the Nicene Creed. And it's like um, when 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 a critic regards Saint Athanasius, who gave us the deity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity, or when, when they regard Gregory of Nyssa, those teachings who's called the flower of orthodoxy and the father of the fathers, if they hear them and think it's liberal, then who's the heretic? Right. Right. (laughs) This is, and so, uh, you know, and uh, this word heretic gets thrown around very easily as a pejorative these days. In in the ancient world, it just meant you'd made a mistake. A heretic was someone who made a mistake and you didn't kick them out or anything. You worked with them. But the mistake was the the heresy was was any kind of thing that would um, especially especially uh, split the Trinity or split the incarnate Christ. So, for example, um, penal substitution does say that the Father poured out His wrath on the Son. That you know ninety percent of those who teach it, right? Or that the Father turned his face from the sun and uh, or something like that. Well, then what you've got there is you're splitting the Trinity. We only worship one God. And, and so right. to say that somehow the Trinity is severed for a moment in time, that's called, that's tritheism. And that was rejected by the council. Uh, the, the, let's see the third council in the early 400s. It's like, no, that that's, that's impossible. You can't have the father turning his back on the sun or you have three gods. Or th- right, um, or or you can't have like Jesus hanging on the cross, but he's only a man now, and it's somehow that's split from his deity. Well, okay, that's called Nestorianism. So all of these things have been covered, and I have yet, I've been in debates on penal substitution. I've I've yet to hear anyone even try to answer how the father turning his back on the son, pouring out his wrath on him is not either tritheism or Nestorianism. It, it's because it is always one or the other. And so that's, that'd be an example of how what we, what you and I might have thought or our critics that might think is, well, you've gone liberal. It's like, no, we've gone back to the ancient church. Um, what happened here was something awful kind of snuck in, in the in the reformation era of the early 1500s and and now we're just finally seeing it i think saying yeah for sure yeah you know and that's that's i can definitely relate as far as getting called liberal or or whatever i'm i remember specifically um when i my es you know es eschatology kind of started shifting to this eschatology of hope and uh because of people like maximus and um Isaac of Nineveh and, th- mm-hmm. and things like that, you know, that, that this end was going to be a glorious end, you know, this theosis or whatever was going to come that all of creation was going to be redeemed and, and raised up to, you know, new life and not just get carried off to some sky kingdom, you know, <laughs> on the other side <laughs> of the galaxy. Yeah. Um, you know, they're like, Oh, this, you know, this is liberal. This is a new age. And I'm just like, man, this, this was written like <laughs> 1800 years ago. This is, this is nothing new. This is nothing I'm coming up with. And of course, you know, they, it was just still so push, so much pushback. And I'm just like, you know, I understand the church fathers didn't agree on every little detail all the time. I said, but I said, I, I can make a case against, you know, eternal conscious torment now because of them. And they're much older. <laughs> their their wisdom and their insight is much closer to Jesus than, than John Hagee's or anybody that's here, or, you know, as far as penal substitution goes, Charles Spurgeon or, or whoever, you know. And I had a pastor tell me, quote Charles Spurgeon one time, where Charles Spurgeon says, you know, penal substitution is the gospel. And I was just like, well, if that's the gospel, then I don't want to, it's not good news to me. Like, <laughs> not anymore anyway. It doesn't sound like good news to anybody, but so yeah. for sure. They, you definitely get called a liberal when you start having any kind of, I think, idea outside of um, – I guess what's the the normal Western Christian perspective, but yeah, um, which is which has just been co opted by modernism. So I would say, right. you know, I'll tell you, it's liberal. It's when you depart from the fathers, you right. know. And so uh, now, some of my liberal friends aren't; they don't appreciate the fathers. But I'm like, you know, there there's some pretty good um, 
advocates there for if if you're thinking might god might be love um right and what i love i love to use uh, ephesians chapter 3 as as a criteria and basically what paul says is there is um that that the height the the height the width the depth the length of god's love is always 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 going to be more than you can grasp and you'll need the power of the holy spirit in you just to glimpse it and when you do glimpse right. it you'll realize that it is beyond what you asked or imagined all right so right. using that as your criteria <laughs> you lay out competing gospels and you say you know we're all just toddlers here with crayons doing our best to kind of <laughs> draw a picture of our of the god we believe in and so we're all going to miss it but what we can do is say whichever one has a higher love a wider love a deeper love or longer love always go with that one because it will always be more than that even you know like um if 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 i so if i look at let's say the the classic evangelical penal substitutionary atonement model I grew up with alongside uh, what I see in the Eastern liturgy from the fourth century, third century, second century, and all these. And I, I just put them side by side. I go, which, which one is closer to higher, wider, longer, and deeper love? And right. then I'm obligated by Ephesians three to go with that. And, and I'm, and hopefully, hopefully we're only 1% of the way there. No, it's probably not right. even that. It's way better than we thought. Right. I mean, however, I, I, I tell people, think about God as the most loving and merciful as you possibly can, and you're still, you're miles away. Yes. Um, and, you know, and for me, there was a quote um, from Origen, and he's not even necessarily talking about God as love or anything like that. Um, he's actually, I think, talking about, God not being corporal in first principles, but he says, uh, God is incomprehensible and in, in incapable of being measured for whatever be the knowledge, which we are able to obtain of God, either by perception or reflection, we must of necessity believe that he is by many degrees far better than what we perceive him to be. Yeah. And I remember reading that and just stopping and being like, you know, I've, I have this tiny little box that I've shoved God in. And you know, I think I got him, you know, it's in, it's almost like a, a need to master God, I think. But I had gotten the small, understandable, detailed little box that this is who he was. And, you know, I kind of, I guess in the same sense, another way to say it is, you know, I made Jesus sit in the corner. You know, I, I figured him out. You sit in the corner. We'll do our thing, you know. Um, but just reading those words from Origin have stuck with me for several years, you know, just that, you know, of, of necessity, we must believe that he is by many degrees far better than we perceive him to be. Yeah, I'm going to need um, you to email me that. That's like, we got to tweet that because, <laughs> I mean, that's it. That's that's what I mean yeah. by Ephesians 3. And here's here's Origen riffing off Paul there. And, and uh, although he had his detractors, that message actually stayed and informed the the great councils that that finalized the creeds and the because they they saw it very clearly and wow if only we would right yeah so the god the god here i just i realized more than anything the god of my fundamentalist kind of background and the god of you know majority of western christianity he's just so utterly small Mm -hmm. so small you know we um I don't know. I don't. I don't want a God I can carry around in my pocket. If that makes sense, you know. I that, think you are God. right, though, that it's an issue of mastery, and this is what I mean by co- modernism and liberalism. It is about is about standing over and and somehow <laughs> in it, calling calling it conservative. There's nothing conservative about mastering God. You know, right? Putting him in a box and saying he can't do this or be that. Um. So. He's exploding our boxes or, or at least showing us that they were delusions in the first place because he actually right. didn't fit in it. Some kind of puppet we'd created might have been in there, but it wasn't him. Right. You know, and something, too, that I, I've come to realize, and I, I'm sure you can resonate with this, is that, like, I can look back on my time and that kind of that theology and that mindset, and that's some of the greatest moves of God that I've ever felt in my life. Mm. I like even even though I had that theology and that was my understanding, I I there's I had I've had mystical experiences or whatever in that time period that 
I just I can't I can't even articulate how amazing they were and the depth and the experience I experienced God loves and love in those moments and the things I've seen the Spirit move and do in the world around me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess in that point in my life, I always saw it as validation of my theology, validation of my rightness or you know my mastery. And I think that that happens a lot today. People we see God move and we have these experiences and we think it's a validation of what we believe and say and think and about God, but it, it's really just Him moving you know, in spite of those things, him, his, it just, to me, it ultimately reveals how, how much he truly loves us. Cause despite our jacked up theology, he's still coming to us and he's still revealing himself to us. And he's still showing us his love and his mercy, despite the fact that we have some really messed up theology. Yeah. That's, that's a really good way of putting it. it especially you think this is how it's always been. Right. So, you know, King David, what is he? He's Conan the bar- barbarian. <laughs> And yeah. and he and God comes to him. It's like, how am I going to get Conan the Barbarian to like where I want to get him? I'm, well, I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to walk with him, even when he thinks I'm the one slaughtering all his enemies for him. Um, right. And yet, and yet, you see a breakthrough in Psalm 103, and here's Conan saying, "The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding, bounding in loving kindness, as high as the heavens are above the earth. So great is His mercy for those who fear Him." As far as the, you know, how does how does that happen, right? And even then, right. it's, it's still an it's he's still thinking, you know, God's relationship with him is an endorsement of his whole worldview and his and all his even violent practices and and yet and yet it's heading somewhere and where it heads is is the incarnation when god comes finally and only uh in person to to say okay here here's who i really am right and that's where everything hinges and strangely so much of christianity has it's it's anemic when it comes to understanding the incarnation because anytime I like if I ever like talk to anybody and I'm um, big into peace work and, and justice and peace work and nonviolence and and nonviolent resistance and if, anytime I ever quote the Sermon on the Mount about loving your enemies the first thing somebody says is about God slaughtering you know <laughs> whoever or, you know God commanding you know the death of the yeah. uh, Amalekites or the Canaanites or whatever and I'm like. And they were like, well, David killed Goliath. And that's what I strangely just, uh, when I first started kind of deconstructing, I wrote a blog called why I won't teach my son about David versus Goliath. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had, there was an old blog, like a whole, I have a whole different website. I haven't even messed with it in like two years. Well, I just signed in last week and I've literally had like 60 comments this year. And I mean, it's completely dead. Like (laughs) I haven't, I haven't messed with it. And just people just so mad, you know, that I would say that, (laughs) you know, (laughs) <laughs> and so, and of course, I took kind of a, a Girardian kind of approach and my medic, you know, yep. kind of a theory and looking at David and, and what happened after the, the Goliath event and the things that he did and how he became, you know, essentially the thing that he, he sought to destroy in some measure. Um, but, and so, like, I haven't even messed with it. And that was one of the blog, I, like, that post got so much hate. But the first thing I think about when people, you know, they come against that kind of mindset, I'm like, oh, are you, like, are, are you a Christian or do you follow David? Right, <laughs> like, right, right. You know, that, that's my, do you follow Jesus or you follow David? Or do you follow Moses or do you or, or you follow Jesus? It's, um, and it, it's, yeah. I hate to pit one against the other in that kind of way, but it, it's the only way I think, in some sense, we, we can jar people to realize what they're saying. But, um Jesus is, you know, John said, you know, the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus. Yeah. You know, Jesus revealed this. He tab God tabernacled among us. He didn't just come in cloud and fire and speak and and give us a, you know, these things or these experiences. He came in person in flesh and showed us who he was. Yeah. The same prologue says, you know, that no one's seen God at any time but God the only son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. And so that means Okay, we may not pit pit these other texts against Jesus, but we they do need to bow to him. And that was a big right. moment for me as I, I when I was coming, you know, like really looking at this, I went to uh, Archbishop Lazar and I said, "Look at you I got to have it out with you about this whole 1 Samuel 15 <laughs> thing and the genocide of the Amalekites and here's here's God is telling Samuel to tell Saul to go wipe these guys out and then when, and then when he shows mercy you know uh 
Samuel's freaking out all night about it. He's so angry and he's, he comes to like your, your kingdom will be torn from you. God wants obedience, not, you know, <laughs> sacrifice and apparently not mercy either. And, and I, so I said, what do you do with this archbishop? And he says, um, like, uh, God told, God told Samuel to do this. I'm like, he said, no, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a cantankerous old man whose, whose bigotry, uh, he's not letting go of. And he wants to actually have a ethnic cleansing of people for sins committed centuries earlier. Right. And I said, but, but, but the, the narrator says that God told him and he says, well, <laughs> And and he just pushed back and pushed back and finally said, but but Archbishop, it's the word of God. And then the big long index finger cups up in my face, right? <laughs> and he says, no, <laughs> Jesus Christ is the word of God. And any scripture that claims to reveal God must bow before the living God when he came in the flesh. You know, and I'm like, whoa, and <laughs> the, the goosebumps <laughs> and my hair was up and all of yeah. that. And I realized this is what it was. You know, it was a, an exactly the language used an anemic view of the incarnation where we'd flatten out our bible as if the narrator of uh, of this this story knew god better than jesus christ did himself and right and 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 as if samuel had a revelation of god that that contradicts i mean they're they're in contradiction and so who trumps who here and right uh, well I'll put it this way. Jesus Christ is my God and I worship him. Uh, right. Everything else needs to point to him or it has no authority. Uh, right. And I, he's not going to let us get away with trying to build tabernacles to anybody else. Nope. Nope. Yeah. Every, every, if we try, if we try to build a tabernacle to Moses or, or Elijah, God's going to, you know, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. You know, I think if we're honest, yeah. we can have that kind of moment, you know, realize that, you know, when we, when we raise Moses up to the level of, you know, of just as the same importance as far as his words, mm -hmm. as the words of Christ, then we're, we're bringing Christ down. Yeah. And that's yeah. not a Bible problem. That's just a, our inter we're clinging to a particular way of interpreting the Bible. That's the problem. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I always, I, I get it all the time. People tell me I have a low view of scripture that I hate the scriptures. And I'm like, that's the one thing from my evangelical background that I've kept. Like, I love the scriptures. Like I, I love them. I'm, I love them now more than I ever have. And, you know, I literally used to spend hours as a teenager reading them and just reading and reading and reading, reading the Bible in, in junior high and high school. And, um, you know, but and I, I thought I loved them then, but I now that I can realize that I don't have to make them play on my own terms, and I don't have to make them behave the way I think they should behave. Yeah, yeah. and that you know God is like Jesus. Then I, f I found a whole new love for them in a way that I never, never thought I could love them. Yeah, and as Zond says, we're not even welcome to read it without Jesus Christ as our sponsor. You know, like you need a right. sponsor to get in, and he's the only one. <laughs> so you, he, right. he's your rabbi who guides you in, in what it means and what it doesn't mean and how you use it and how you don't use it. And, and that's, that's there in the Sermon on the Mount. That's there through the Gospels. And it's not about throwing the Bible under the bus, that's for sure. But it is about saying, I'm, you know, the Bible's not my God, Jesus is. And, I, and, and it is a testimony pointing to him the whole time. Right. So. I think much of um, Western, a lot of Western Christianity in the sense of spe specifically fundamentalism, I shouldn't, I shouldn't use such a broad stroke, I don't think, but it's, it's Father, Son, and Holy Bible, yeah, you know, yeah. it's the Bible's the, the third person of the Trinity that, you know, gets to trump something else, you know, and it, it's usually strangely is that if we would just be honest with ourselves, it's, it, our, our particular readings, especially when we, we have disagreements with Jesus, is that it comes back to some kind of politics or the fact that it makes us uncomfortable. Yep. But loving your enemies shouldn't make you com <laughs> make you comfortable. You know what I mean? It's, it's one of those things that loving your enemies, do good to those that you know hurt you, bless those who curse you. That's I have a hard time loving the people that love me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I get it. I get why, you know, turn the other cheek is – is not necessarily a desirable thing for your God to tell you, but no, it's, it's there. It's and the it's... crucifixion of the ego is what it is, you know? Right. <laughs> so, so, uh, and Saints, Saint Silo and the Athenite said this, what, just what you said really, in some ways, he, he said that, um, that love of enemy, um, after the pattern of Christ is, is the highest 
um, it, it, it's it's your highest form of discernment because your flesh or your ego can counterfeit almost anything else. Right. But but, but it can't counterfeit love of enemy. <laughs> and right. So, right. So then it That's becomes good. a criteria for discernment, and 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 actually it becomes the means to the crucifixion of the old self and and then and then uh, we rise to the new self of enemy love in christ but yeah there's nothing fun about that and i think you're right it the resistance is it has to do with political agendas and so on yeah it, well, it's it's easy to it's easy to approach the scriptures with our agendas you know it's it's really hard to begin to i mean we all have lenses we all have those things but you know, and we all have our slants, you know, when we, we carry baggage with us when we come to scripture every time, you know, we have jaded lenses, but it's, it's hard to get rid of those. And I still, there's times I read scripture and I'm like, I have to remind myself, you know, that this I'm, I'm projecting in a sense, a lot, a lot more than I'm, uh, I think I am. Yep. So, but well, Brad, I don't want to, um, keep you, uh, in, uh for the rest of your afternoon, but I would like to, um, if we could, unless there's something else you would like to, to mention before we get towards the end of this, but um, I kind of always ask people one question at the end of these interviews, and I, I say that like I've had a bunch. This You're actually my only fourth uh, guest on the show so far, um, but if you could bring back anyone from church history, um, whether that be recent, you know, um, or all the way back till, you know, first century or whatever, if you could bring anyone back, um, or uh, three people back rather, if you could bring three people back to sit over a cup of coffee or a beer or whatever, <laughs> or, or, or whatever it is and, um, and have some kind of conversation with them, who would it be and why? Well, I, I assume I don't get to include Jesus in this. Hey? <laughs> um, no. yeah, no, oh, Never. okay. <laughs> Oh, darn. Um, All the imperfect people. Yeah. <laughs> That's well, your point. Let's see. Uh, so for sure, for sure, I would want St. Macrina the Younger there. She was the older sister of Basil the Great, Gregory of Nyssa, and really um, uh, she taught them. They called her Macrina the Teacher. And so Basil is the one who ends up finally winning the day on the full personhood of the Holy Spirit. Well, he, he learned it from her. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa wow. is the final editor of the Nicene Creed, which brings this hopeful eschatology into the creed itself. Well, he learned it from her. And uh, so, so um, Greg, in fact, Gregory of Nyssa's book on the soul and the resurrection, 80% of it or more, she's the one talking. You know, So she's this precious, precious woman, um, St. Macrina, M-A-C-R-I-N-A. -A. <clears throat> Um, I'll zoom forward to the 20th century, and then I'll think about my third. In the 20th century, uh, I feel like Simone Weil, W-E-I-L, not V-E-I-L. Um, uh, she is this is this incredible saint. Uh, passed away in the 30s. She started. Uh, she refused to join the Catholic Church, even though she'd had direct encounters with Christ. And, and the Catholic right. priests are begging her to be baptized <laughs> because, <Yeah. laughs> because like they knew she was for real. And she said, no, I can't, the, your, your church is too small. It's not Catholic enough, you know, in terms right. of inclusive. Well, it ends up that <clears throat> the two popes that run Vatican II that opened up the Roman Catholic Church, they, they regard her as, as, their, as a primary influence. They're just riffing off of her, actually. So we got Simone Weil, we got St. Macrina. Um, uh, you know, and then take your pick among the fathers, I guess. Um, I, I've got this love for, for the faithfulness of Maximus, the confessor who, who for his high, high Christology, um, had his writing hand cut off and his tongue torn out by the roots. And right. And he didn't consider that his theology is, is some nitpicking thing that he was doing. Uh, he felt the gospel itself uh, is worthy of, a, of, of going through excruciations in the name of Jesus. And so today it'd be Maximus, but like next week it'll be somebody else probably. But I, get, I think Macrina and Vague at the front seats. Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah, the mind, mind change every week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Um, I, I think probably um, just because I, I've just recently started reading it, I the anonymous author of the cloud the cloud of unknowing. Mm. Mm-hmm. I would I would love just uh, I don't know I guess just know more about I guess than what's even detailed in the book and and have some kind of conversation. Um, if you get a read it, a chance to read Revelations of Divine Love by Julian of Norwich N O R W I C H. Some people think she may have even read the cl- wrote, written the cloud. I I kind of doubt it though, but. She'd be another one. I'd like so I'd have the three ladies there probably: Macrina, Julian, and and, and Vey. I'm gonna go with that. Yeah. <laughs> so I uh, <laughs> yeah, we we can take it back, no problem. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I really do enjoy uh, Julian. I actually did an episode on her for Easter Tide. I did. Um, I focused all on in in honor of Mary being the apostle to the apostles. Oh yeah. Um, for Easter Tide, I focused all on female voices. Um, so I changed the name for Easter Tide to Lessons from Dead Gals, even though for me, guys has always been gender neutral. Yeah. Um, and yeah. will continue to be, but I just really wanted to put a specific emphasis on, um, female voices during the season of Easter Tide. And, um, so I, I, I did someone, Julian, and, um, just her witness and the things, you know, uh, I, I love, I love some of, uh, her thoughts and, oh, yeah. um, and Mary but, Magdalene. Uh, oh my goodness. <laughs> yep. Sorry. This is getting expansive, but yeah. Oh, oh yeah, no, you're good. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, uh, I feel like I, I could talk for days about some of these people, you know, but, um, definitely whoever wrote the cloud of unknowing. Yeah. Um, I I always go back to Origin just because mm-hmm. I just I'm fascinated with him. I'm fascinated with it. even though he had you know some of these ideas that people are just you know freak out about. I just I'm he was so brilliant. I mean I just I sometimes I just sit there and I have to read stuff he says over and over and over before it like really can even comprehend it. And I feel like I have a really good reading comprehension, but it's just I don't know. I would just I would like to sit down and hang out with Origin. I think. Um, and then I think probably right now I've been reading a lot more, um, a lot of liberation theology oh, as yeah. of late and, yeah. um, Oscar Romero, yes. um, who was not at all like for liberation theology and just had this radical, you know, change of heart and preferential treatment for the poor. Um, just, I, I listen to his sermons a lot. There's, um, a violence of love, like uh, have the audio sermons uh, from that and just um, his passion. So it would be those three. I kind of try to spread it out a little bit, but I definitely, it could just, any, anybody from the church fathers probably I would I would be more than happy with, but um, those would be my three for this week anyway. Awesome, awesome. Though. Well, Brad, thank you so much for coming on, man. It's been such a joy having you on. I've enjoyed it. I hope um, you've enjoyed it as well. And I'm so glad to just get to uh, discuss with you and talk with you about your journey and your life and um, the good news that Jesus showed us what God's like, right? (laughs) My pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah, this is very good news. And so it's great to have a, a venue to share it. I really appreciate you letting me do that.